Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Today, if I, if I could give today's lesson a title, I guess it would be Overwhelmed by Circumstances. Overwhelmed by Circumstances for today's lesson. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 42 verses 25 through 38 Genesis 42 verses 25 through 38 anybody remember what we where we're at so far what we saw happen last week Joseph approaching his brothers and sisters our brothers sorry no sister in this one yet I mean, there is, but doesn't mention right? Right, and he gets all over them, right? You guys are spies, and they have that confrontation with Joseph. And then, uh, you remember how it ended. How did it end? Do you remember how it ended? Send him to to jail to send back Benjamin. Benjamin, good. Yeah, he basically said, you guys are spies, and he threw them into prison, and then uh, three days later, he lets them all go except for Simeon. He arrests Simeon, he puts him in handcuffs and throws him back in prison and says, hey, unless you bring back Benjamin, this little brother you told me about, uh, you're not going to get Simeon back. And so that was where we left off. They were able to get away, and we're in verse 25. We're going to see that right now. Somebody mind reading verse 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriela. So what did they go down to Egypt to do? Yeah, to pick up grain. So here they are. They're getting their grain. What do you use to buy grain? <laughs> use money, some sort of money, right? Uh, back then, they didn't have. They didn't actually have coinage yet. Coinage came along later, uh, from what I understand in, in reading from the historians that are talking about this verse. So apparently, what happened was you would bring something to trade. You'd bring something to barter. And in Egypt, there weren't any mines for silver. So silver was a common commodity that you could use to barter to, to pay for the grain. So here in this verse, verse 25, then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money. That word for money is actually silver. It's the same word for silver. All right. But if you didn't have silver, you could presumably also show up with some other precious metal. You could show up with gems. You could show up with spices or incense or some other luxury item. And those things, because you're on a bartering system, they would have some sort of agreement that would be worked out. So they get their sacks of grain. That's what they came down for. You pay for grain with money, or in this case, silver. You pay your silver, you get your grain, and you don't usually get your grain with your silver, with your money put back in the sack. All right. So that's a little twist that we've got going on here. We're going to see what's going to happen with that. So we know what's going on. Joseph has has made it clear that that's what he wants done. But the brothers don't know that's happened yet. They don't get to see the, the money being put in the sacks and going, oh, what's going on? He's putting money back in my sack. They don't get to see that happening. Uh, what ends up happening also, you see there in verse 25, the word and. See the word and? What happens after the word and there? And to give them provisions for the journey. And to give them provisions for their journey. That's kind of strange. I wonder if he does that for everybody. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like this is something special that the author decided, you know what, I'm going to make sure to mention this, and to give them provisions for their journey. Provisions, presumably in the form of food or drink, all right? Mm -hmm. What would that do? Well, that would allow you to get further away from where you're taking your grain before you have to open a sack to get something else to eat. Because presumably your sack has the money in it, it's tied, 
But if you have enough to eat and drink for a uh, hundred miles, you're not. It's going. You're going to be further away before you get to open it. As opposed to, oh boy, I'm really hungry. I've been in jail for three days. Uh, as soon as we get out of the city, let's open up the sacks and get something to eat. Because then you're going to find the money and you're going to go back and you're not going to get very far. So it sounds like Joseph wants them to get pretty far before they even find out that there's any money in the sacks. All right. So he gives them provisions for their journey. And then verse 26, somebody mind reading that? So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. The distance that they're going there on this journey back, it's obviously it's the same journey that, that they took coming down, but I think I might have neglected to say how many miles it was because somebody asked me afterwards. I think it was Sherry asked me afterwards, how many miles was that trip? Uh, it looks like about 200 to 250 miles. So this isn't across town. We live within a half a mile of a grocery store. Every once in a while, my kids go, hey, uh, we're out of Cheerios. Okay, here's some money. Go buy some Cheerios. What? That's so far. Uh, Not compared to what these guys had to do, right? Half a mile? uh, That's not far. These guys, 250 miles to get your food. That's a long way. 250 miles take about three weeks probably. All right? About three weeks journey. So you can imagine this is is not a a small thing for them. Imagine that three-week journey. Imagine you're spending night one or night two or night three, night four, night five on the road, right, with your brothers. And having to think about all of what just had happened, right? Oh, man, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not in that jail cell anymore. Oh, but it's sad that Simeon's still there. You know, gosh, this it feels like God's punishing us for what we did to Joseph 20 years ago. I wish we wouldn't have done that. You know, I wish we could go back and do something different about that. Every night you're, you're out there just out in the wild in your tent you know or what, maybe they didn't even have tents I'm thinking of Mike camping at Joshua Tree mm-hmm. you know every night you're out there under the stars thinking about what could we have done different how did it all go down like that how did he know to ask us so many questions how did we find ourselves in a spot where we revealed we had a younger brother mm-hmm. this is just so strange God seems like he's punishing us he's watching over us but he's also not letting us get away with that crime against our little brother Joseph back in the day verse 27 somebody might reading that one at the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, dear. All right, so now it's found, right? The first sack is open, and now there's the money there, sitting there, presumably at the top of the grain. Interestingly, he's not even opening the sack for himself. So it's probably the provisions that uh, Joseph gave them. It's probably better than what's in the sack. Because he's opening it for his donkey. He's probably like, I'm not going to feed the donkey the good stuff I was given. I'm going to keep eating that. I'll give the donkey a little bit of the grain. All right. And that's when the money is found. What happens? He says something in verse 28. Somebody mind reading verse 28. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. And there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them. And they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So I remember when I was a kid, I was probably five years old when this story happened. I was at a public pool in a little community that had a pool for everybody in the community. You could come, you could pay two bucks or something, and you could swim in the pool all day if you wanted to. And I remember finding a $20 bill. I found a $20 bill. And as a little kid, I still remember that. I was like, wow, I found money. I was really excited. I wasn't, what does it say here? My heart did not fail me. I wasn't afraid. Why are they afraid? Why does their heart fail them when they find money? I was doing great finding money, but they're in a different situation. Why is that? What's different in their circumstances? I think they think they're going to be accused of stealing it or something, maybe. I think you're right. They've already been accused once, right? Not of stealing. What was it they were accused of doing? Spying, right. And they narrowly got out of that. 
right? It was like they were kept on the ropes with that one. And they're like, man, we just got done barely convincing this guy that we were going to spy. I mean, we were thrown into jail for the weekend, right? And I don't want to go back. Do you want to go back? No, I don't want to go back. And try to explain away that the money's still in the sack and try to say I'm not a thief. You know, there's probably, uh, yeah, that probably had a little bit to do with their hearts failing them and them being afraid. And then they say this interesting thing. What is this that God has done to us? What is this that God, they're blaming God, right? At least they're bringing God into the equation. At least they're recognizing that God is involved in what they're doing, all right? The interesting thing is, uh, when they say this, what is this that God has done to us? This is the first time in the entire account since they've been born that we read of them saying or acknowledging God. Uh, Joseph, we find that he recognizes and acknowledges God at every turn, it seems. But the brothers, we don't see that. We haven't read that. Now, surely it's probably in their family traditions that, you know, God took care of our great-grandpa, Abraham. He took care of Isaac. He's taking care of our dad, Jacob. You know, I'm sure there were discussions that had to do with God, but limited to what we've read so far, they haven't acknowledged God in their lives. So here they seem to be acknowledging God for the first time anyway that we know of. Uh, What is this that God has done for us? There's two parts I want to emphasize there, two parts to draw your attention to. Number one, what is this that God, they're recognizing God is involved in the details of their lives, in the circumstances of their lives. And number two, what is this that God has done to us, that God is doing something in their lives? All right, so they're recognizing God's involved and they're recognizing he's doing something in their lives. And then what ends up happening, verse 29 Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, and then for the next five verses, they recount what happened to them in Egypt. The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest (coughs) is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me so that I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Now, it's kind of interesting when it started there in verse 29, where it says that they told him all that had happened to them. And they left a few things out. Uh, One of the things they left out was, uh, surely this is happening to us because of what we did to our little brother Joseph. (laughs) They didn't tell dad that part. They didn't tell dad that they confessed their sins to one another, that they had uh, mistreated Joseph so many years ago, 20 years before. And then here at the end, this is kind of strange, the way that verse 34 ends. And you may trade in the land. I don't remember that happening. I don't remember that being part of the agreement that Joseph gave them. Uh, So apparently that was an abbreviated arrangement that we saw earlier. Uh, We also have in verse 35, jumping down, then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. So apparently they had opened that one sack on the road. They saw the money in there. I'm kind of curious. I would kind of be thinking, let's check the other sacks. But they apparently didn't do that. Maybe because they were afraid of what they would find. (laughs) Maybe they were afraid that they would find the money in the other sacks. And they thought, oh, you know what? It's bad enough to find the money in one sack. I don't know how we're going to overcome that. Why would Joseph put the money in the sack? Why do you suppose? In all the sacks. If there were less than uh, Okay. To have found it. Good. So it could be a check on their honesty, a test. 
Let's see what they say the next time they show up. Let's see if they say anything about the money in their sacks. Let's see if they keep it quiet. Yeah, it could be a test. Or if they even come back. Or if they even come back. Some of the commentators also suggest maybe he gave them money, put the money back in their sacks, thinking, I don't know what they've got for provisions at home. Maybe they don't have enough to come back, and maybe this would be enough incentive to come back to make sure that they can't use that as an excuse. Oh, well, we didn't come back because we didn't have any money to buy more grain. So those are the two biggest possibilities, the, the ones that are suggested the most. One is a test on their honesty. The other is to provide them what they're going to need to come back to buy more. Now, Jacob gives his response in verse 36. But before we read Jacob's response, I want to draw your attention to one of the things that we see here. Remember the last time that the brothers came home minus one brother? Do you remember that was Joseph? When the brothers came home and there was no Joseph? Remember what ended up happening back when they sold Joseph? They got money for that, right? They sold Joseph. They got money. They come home. They go, hey, Dad, I don't know what to tell you. Is this the, you know, the coat that you gave to your favorite son? You know? And then what ends up happening after that? They had money, extra money that they weren't given. I'm sure that probably showed up in some forms. Hey, you know, maybe Dad's thinking, where'd you get your new suit? You know, where'd you get those new shoes? Oh, you know, I just came into a little bit of money. Oh, how about you? You seem to be eating nice, you know. Oh, how about you? You got a new, you know, something for your hobby, you know. They had money. They were given money for the sale of their brother. They came back home. There was one less brother, and they had money. Here what ends up happening. They come back home. There's one less brother, and oh, there's money. I wonder if dad's starting to put the pieces together. I wonder if dad's starting to suspect that maybe his boys, are, you know, they're selling each other off at every chance they get. Verse 36, look at his reply. In verse 36, and Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. It sounds like he's on to them. I don't know. You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. So it sounds like dad's kind of like, oh, I'm done losing kids, you know. I'm done sending my kids out with you guys as a group. This is a bad deal. Every time you come back, there's one less of you, and some, and you all have money. What's the deal with that? So, so when he says there, all these things are against me, you remember what I was saying earlier when we got started, the title of the lesson, Overwhelmed by the Circumstances. All these things are against me. Jacob sounds to be overwhelmed by his circumstances. Uh, I can't blame him. If I lost a, a, a son or a daughter, I'd be feeling overwhelmed by the circumstances too. You know, we find ourselves overwhelmed by circumstances a lot, don't we? We find ourselves, no matter whether our lives are easy, mediocre, hard, or extremely difficult that we always uh, can find something to worry about. There's always something to overwhelm us, always something that we let have that kind of control or power over us, that we go, oh, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this, right? And we look at our circumstances and we get overwhelmed. I want to take four different snapshot stories out of the Bible and just look at these of guys that were overwhelmed by their circumstances. And the first one, I want to take you to Matthew. Turn to Matthew, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 and looking at verses 22 through 33, and this is going to be a familiar story to most of you. This is the story of Peter walking on the water. Right away, you're going, oh, I know this one. Yeah, I remember this one. So this is going to be a story. And like I said, this is the first of four little snapshots, little stories that have to do with people that were overwhelmed by their circumstances. All right. So chapter 14, Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 22. 
Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. Verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 28, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. High point of Peter's career right here. High point of Peter's life. All right, here you go. Verse 29, So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Right on. Cool. Kudos to Peter. Kudos to Peter for stepping out of the boat and getting out into the water. And he's walking on water just like Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Verse 30 is when we're going to see that he's overwhelmed by his circumstances. Verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Peter, high point of his career, gets out of the boat. He's actually doing it. He's walking on water. And like that, what happens? He ends up taking his eyes, right? Because he saw. He ends up taking his eyes off of Jesus. He's He's walking to Jesus. Hey, if it's really you, call to me and I'll come out to you. And Jesus says, all right, come. So he gets out of the boat. He's keeping his eyes on Jesus, walking toward Jesus. As he's walking toward Jesus, he's fine. But when he changes his gaze from God to his circumstances, he begins to sink. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he sees his circumstances and he gets worried. He gets afraid and he starts to sink, right? So the first thing we could take away from this, get your eyes off your circumstances and back onto God. When we are overwhelmed by our circumstances, one of the things that we can do is get our eyes off of our circumstances and put them back on God. Get your eyes off your circumstances and back onto God. And the second one is this. From that very same verse, verse 30, it ends with Peter calling out, Lord, save me. So number two, call out to God to save you. When you're overwhelmed by your circumstances, get your eyes off your circumstances. Put them back on God. That's number one. Number two, call out to God to save you. All right. And then, what does it say in verse 31, the next verse? And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so number three, I would say resist doubts and fears. To the best of your ability, resist doubts and fears. Why do I say to the best of your ability? Because that's going to lead us to the next story. The next story is from Mark. Mark chapter 9, verses 17 through 27. Like I said, Four little stories, people overwhelmed by their circumstances. We can all relate. Mark chapter 9, verses 17 through 27. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Jumping down to verse 21 now. So he, Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Verse 22. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, notice that, if you can, 
If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That phrase where he says, if you can, Jesus takes that and turns it around. Gives it back to the guy. You see in the very next verse, verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, (laughs) all things are possible to him who believes. So at first the guy says, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, well, if you can believe, right? He takes that phrase, turns it back on him. And then verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. So when we're overwhelmed by our circumstances, we can learn from this passage. Number four, ask God to help you in your unbelief. Remember I said in number three, resist doubts and fears to the best of your ability. If they don't all completely go away, then implement number four here. Ask God to help you in your unbelief. In those residual areas where you haven't been able to conquer those doubts and those fears. Help you in your unbelief. Ask God for help. Ask God to help you in your unbelief. Next little story. Old Testament for this one, 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 17. So basically, 8 through 14 are to give you the background. All right? So 8 through 14 for the background. Those verses say this. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So that's the background. So here's the background. You've got Elisha. He's a prophet in Israel. And you've got this warring king. And the king, his battle plans, he whispers to his important people that need to know. And somehow, the king of Israel knows what they're going to do. And he's like, I got, a, I got a spy in my ranks. I got a mole. And he says, who is it? Who's my mole? Tell me. You know, somebody in here is, somebody in here is ratting me out. Somebody in here is giving away the battle plans. And they tell him, no, it's actually there's a prophet down there in Israel. And he knows what you're saying. His God reveals to him what your plans are. And his God tells him, and he tells the king, and that's how they know what we're going to do before we even do it. So he's like, we'll find out where this prophet is, and we're going to take care of him. So they find out the city where he's at, the place where he's at, Dothan. And they, they end up surrounding the place in the middle of the night. So here we are. That's the background. Verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God, we don't know his name here, but when the servant of the man of God, and the man of God is Elisha, when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. So you imagine this guy. You know, get up in the morning. Oh, I got to stretch. Kind of cold. I want to go outside and stand in the sun a little bit. Gets up from his bed. He goes to the door, opens the door. Uh, maybe stretching with his eyes squinty. And maybe even closed. And he opens his eyes in the city surrounded by the enemy. By an army waiting to get him and his master, right, to get Elisha. So he, he he rises early, goes out, and there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And he, his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Right? Overwhelmed by his circumstances. 
All right. The servant is overwhelmed by his circumstances. Elisha, it says this in verse 16. So he, this is Elisha. He answered, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What would I say to that? Number five, you're on the bigger, stronger team. Okay. (laughs) That's the short part for you. That's the short part for me. Your team is bigger and stronger than your opponent's team. All right. But Elisha just saying that isn't quite enough. The servant doesn't know what that means. Uh, okay, great. That sounds great. But, you know, unless I can see, you know, I'm thinking if I'm in the servant's position, unless I can see this bigger, greater team, what are we talking about here? So uh, Elisha says, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The servant didn't have the perspective that Elisha had. The servant was concentrating on his circumstances, right? He's looking out. He's seeing an enemy army. He doesn't see any army on his side. And God opens his eyes and then he sees, oh, not only is there an army on my side, they're superior to that army that I'm looking at that's, that caused me so much fear when I first saw them. So the next one would be there's, a, there's another dimension ready to battle on your behalf. There's another dimension. We get so hung up in this this physical dimension, this this physical world that we live in. We forget that there's a spiritual realm. There's a spiritual world. And there's warfare that goes on in that realm over us. And sometimes we forget that. We need to remember, not only are we on the bigger, better team, but that battle is oftentimes going on in another realm. Sometimes that we're not even aware of or paying attention to or remembering. And then finally, a fourth story. This one, we're going to go back to the New Testament again. This one's from Luke chapter 22. Who is it that's overwhelmed by his circumstances in this story? Well, so far we've looked at Peter. Peter was overwhelmed in the first story. The second one was the father of the son who was sick. The third one is Elisha's servant. Who's overwhelmed in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46? It's Jesus himself. (gasps) Jesus got overwhelmed by his circumstances? Yes. Luke chapter 22. Verses 39 through 46. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 41. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Verse 42, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus in that moment was overwhelmed by the circumstances that he was in. In fact, it says, if you continue reading on in verse 44, it says, he's praying so earnestly that his sweat becomes like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He's overwhelmed by the circumstances. He's praying, dear God, please take this away. Take this cup away. I don't want to drink from this cup. But what does he do? He teaches us a lesson in that. Surrender. Submit your will to his will for your life. We need to surrender. We need to submit our will to his will. So when we're surrounded by overwhelming circumstances, what do we learn? We have seven things we've learned here from these four stories. From the first stories we learned, get your eyes off your circumstances and back onto God. We also learned that we need to call out to God to save us. And we also learned we need to resist doubts and fears. From the second story of the father of the sick boy, we learned we need to ask God to help us in our unbelief. 
From the third story with Elisha's servant, we learned that we're on the team that's bigger and stronger than the opponent's team. And we also learned that there's another dimension ready to battle on our behalf. And then finally, of this story of Jesus in the garden, what did we learn? We learned we need to surrender. We need to surrender by submitting our will to God's will for our lives. Seven different things to help us through the overwhelming circumstances in our lives. Now, let me ask you a question. Going back to the story of Peter, the first one. When Peter is walking on the water, it's the wind, remember? It's the wind that causes him to worry. He looks at the wind. He sees that the wind is boisterous, and he begins to sink. And he calls out, Lord, save me. What happens? The Lord reaches out, and the Lord grabs him and lifts him up. And then if you read the verses that follow, they get into the boat. Did the wind die before or after Peter was saved in that sense? When he says, Lord, save me, and the Lord does. Did the wind die after or before? After. It was after they were already in the boat. They had already made it through the hard part, and then the wind dies. Did the Lord save him from his circumstances? No. The circumstances were the wind. The Lord saved him in the midst of it, or through those circumstances. The Lord saved him even while the wind was still blowing. They get in the boat, and the wind is still blowing, and then the wind dies. The wind didn't die as soon as Peter started praying. But the Lord saved him, and the wind was still blowing. The circumstances were such that they didn't change, but the Lord saved him, preserved him, brought him out of those circumstances, as opposed to making the circumstances just evaporate, making the circumstances just go away. The Lord saved him in the midst of those circumstances. How about the, the father of the sick boy? If you, if you read more of the story, what ends up happening? After that, Lord, help me in my unbelief. The guy has another epileptic episode, and he falls down as if he's dead. Did the circumstances change? Yeah, they got worse. They didn't get better. But then Jesus heals the boy. He was preserved in the circumstances. How about the third one? Elisha's servant. Did God make the army go away? He didn't make the army go away. If you read the rest of the passage, there's six more verses that talk what happened with that army. But he didn't just make the army go away. He didn't make the earth open up and the army fall into it and close it up and go, solved. They still had to deal with that army. And then the last one, Jesus. Did he have to die? He ended up dying. <laughs> he actually had to go through that. All right? What's my point here? The point is when we're overwhelmed by our circumstances, God can save us. But sometimes it's not the way maybe we ha- might have in mind and hope. We might hope that the circumstances will just evaporate, that they'll just go away. But that's not usually how God does things. Usually when God saves us, he preserves us in moving through those circumstances as opposed to making the circumstances go away. All right? Moving on, where we were, Genesis chapter 42, we'll end up with this, with these last two verses, verses 37 and 38. Genesis chapter 42, verses 37 through 48. Somebody mind reading verse 37. Then Ruth spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you, and put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So I'm reading this story and I'm going, okay, let me get this right. So Reuben's saying, if I don't bring Simeon back to you, kill my two sons, your two grandsons. Um, I'm thinking you don't get to babysit anymore. (laughs) You know, Uh, I'm thinking maybe we need to have a custody thing about your two sons that you're willing to have me kill them. If you, no, no, the answer is going to be no. So you do find out, he says no. He doesn't give him the opportunity to try to rescue Simeon at the risk of losing two grandsons. And then verse 38, somebody mind reading verse 38. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. 
if harm should befall him. On the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to shield and sorrow. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. When he says there, when uh, Jacob says, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave, the you there is plural. He's not just talking to Reuben. He's talking to the whole group. So where are we at? We're stuck, right? Jacob is stuck. He is overwhelmed by his circumstances. They're at an impasse. What's going to cause them to move? It's going to be hunger. But we have to go through all those sacks of grain to get to the point where he's hungry enough to say, okay. But until then, I guess we'll have to stop here. (laughs) All right. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for another chance to be together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, students of you, learning what would you say to us. Thank you, Lord, for the challenge that you've given us today. The challenge to turn it over to you when we're in overwhelming circumstances. Help us, Lord, to call out to you. Help us to kill doubts and fears. Help us, Lord, to ask you to help us with our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to take these uh, little tips that we've learned from other people that were in overwhelming circumstances and to put them to good use when we're in overwhelming circumstances, turning our hearts and our attention, our focus onto you. In Jesus' name.